You're listening to the Ali at UNT podcast, produced by the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas. Learn something new in every episode as we interview UNT faculty, subject matter experts, and lifelong learners in our community. To learn more about our non-credit courses and events, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli at unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ali at UNT member, Susan Supak. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ali. I'm speaking with Dr. John McKenzie. Dr. McKenzie is a retired medical doctor specializing in family practice with extra training in geriatric medicine. After retiring, Dr. McKenzie taught at the LSU School of Medicine in Shreveport, Louisiana. During that time, he took care of his parents, both diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Welcome, Dr. McKenzie. Well, thank you for having me. I'm so thrilled to have you here. I have been looking forward to speaking with you since you first joined the Ali faculty because your knowledge and medical expertise are a particular area of interest for so many of us at Ali in that we are an over 50 community of lifelong learners. And many of us, if not getting much older ourselves, are certainly having parents and family members that are older. And we have to be aware of the area that you're talking about today. You received training and were certified in geriatric medicine. What additional training does a physician receive to be certified as a geriatrician? So when I first certified, when they develop a new specialty, since they have nobody that's specialized to train them, they essentially, we do a bunch of classes. We have to show we've done a bunch of nursing home care and relevant stuff, and then we take a test. And that's the way it starts. But now... You know, that's been, that was probably late 80s that I did all that, and then you keep up with it. Now it's a residency program. So you start off in either, I think it's just family medicine, internal medicine, and they will do one to two years, something like that, of geriatrics. The last year of both of those residencies, it's normally three years, and they do like four. So you can kind of, if you want to do geriatrics, you can take electives of that last year too. So, but it varies, but basically, you start off by liking to be around old people. <laughs> That's kind of the number one thing. And then you learn all the differences. In the specialty, it's kind of interesting how it came about. So one of the first specialties was pediatrics. And what they learned was a little child isn't just like a little adult. So the example I use is if you give a child a moxel for an earache, say a five-year-old, he might have gotten 250 milligrams three times a day. If you give a 300-pound man a moxel, he may get 500 milligrams three times a day. And it has to do with how the drugs work, how they distribute in the body. So for a while, we've had pediatrics. And then geriatrics came along when they learned that elderly patients, as you get older, that changes with them to the metabolism in particular changes. The absorption is pretty standard except for skin. 
So the skin is real, real thin as you get older, especially like, you know, 80s and 90s. I don't like, for instance, to use Neosporin in old people. And the reason I don't is Neomycin, which is in it, it's absorbed into the skin. And I had a patient that had a rash and she put some Neosporin on it. And the rash kept spreading and spreading and spreading. And she came to me. She, her house was literally next door to my clinic. I don't know why she waited so long. But anyway, she finally came in. Wow, she was also allergic to neomycin and kept putting more and more on it. So she, the rash just went everywhere. And it shut down her kidneys. It almost killed her because oh neomycin goodness. is very toxic to the kidneys. And if you absorb enough of it, she lived. She did all right. She's you know, tough lady, but, uh, you know, it just reminds you that something that you would think is completely innocent, you can overdo it. So you, we're real careful about what we, what we give older people. It is a good reminder in that things don't affect us the same way throughout right. our lifespan, whether we're babies or we're 80s and 90s, mm -hmm. it's not going to be the same. Some things aren't going to be the same as they were when we were middle-aged, right? Yeah. So another good example of, and this is just super important, a big difference is how you metabolize medicines. So when you take a Tylenol for a headache, okay, you take your Tylenol, hopefully the headache goes away, and then if you get a headache two weeks later, you have to take Tylenol again. Well, the reason the Tylenol doesn't stay with you forever, why don't you just take one dose and you never get another headache? Well, it doesn't work that way because the body eliminates the Tylenol. And there are drugs in the elderly that are just really bad about sticking around too long. An example is Valium. So Valium, think of the 60s, the 70s, and all of this. But it was a pill given for people that were anxious. Still use some. Shouldn't be used at all in the elderly because if you're 50 years old and you take a Valium, it takes a while for it to leave. It'll probably be gone in about two days. Same person that's, say, 70, maybe two weeks. Wow. So the problem is if you have a, a side effect, you're going to keep it. And the problem with Valium is it makes you fall. It makes you, you know, it does all these things that you don't, in the elderly in particular, you just don't want. And the doctor just kind of needs to know that. So you use very short half-life medicines, medicines that get out of you fast. And uh, you, this is something on the internet you can look up. It's called Beers, B-E-E-R-S, Criteria. And it's a list of medicines that have trouble in the elderly. One thing you can do if you want to do some homework is uh, get out your bottles, look them up. <laughs> I mean, it's, I'm not saying you never use them, but you shouldn't use them unless you really need to. So there are a lot of people take medicines that are optional medicines. They don't think of them that way. But a, an example is Benadryl is one of those bad medicines. A lot of drugs for like bladder control. Or that way they're called anticholinergic drugs but those drugs uh, they think maybe as many as 10 percent of alzheimer's patients were caused by those drugs you know it's just a very it may be higher than that so my mother who had alzheimer's she took the bladder medicines <laughs> you lit, look at the list of things not to do whether it happened or not because right. of that you don't ever know right and we didn't even know that when it mattered for her but it's still you know it's just something to think about if it's an optional medicine maybe opt not to take that. Right, at least you need to be aware. Mm -hmm. There's the benefits and then the other side yeah. of it. So it's good to have a good knowledge on both. This is fascinating to me. I find this just incredibly interesting. And okay, we 
baby boomers and those of us who are getting older, this is something that's going to affect a much larger percentage of the population. Are the geriatric specialists increasing along with the population? Not really. And it's, it really, the medicine, sadly, I, I don't know, I guess this is America, capitalism and everything, but it's money drives all in specialty and stuff, a lot of it. So what's happening, and this is primary care, so this is internal medicine, pediatrics, family practice, they don't pay for what they call cognitive care like they pay for surgeries, okay? So we had like doctors in near Gilmer that did cataract surgery that would send a limousine to your house. <laughs> they want you. That's right. You know, you don't see many family doctor ads on TV. There's a reason for that. It, it's just the payment disparity is so much and what the cost of medical uh, training is so much. So they, you know, something like, 150,000 in debt, maybe 200,000 in debt when they get out of medical school. We had one guy where I was teaching that was 300,000 in debt. And you know, you need to try to service that debt. And that's a lot. It's a lot that's of a house. money for a young person. Right. To carry out. that. Yes, College is. is bad enough. That's you know? right. And they want to go to the specialties that are more lucrative. And that's so they have something called a match where they try to get to the highest paying specialties. And orthopedics the the golden specialty my niece is trying to get into dermatology oh yes you have to wait six months to a year to see oh a good it's just a fabulous specialty they say your patients never get well and they never die it's the joke <laughs> but uh it's a very lucrative specialty because they pay a lot of money to do procedures like take off a little skin cancer right. so i did a lot of that in my practice because i learned how to do it which helped cover the cost of the medicare so for the standard medicare patient Oh, uh, if I took off a little skin cancer that was, oh, we'll say an inch, it would be the same. I would get paid for taking care of them for a year for everything else combined. And it would really? take me 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Yeah. It's just the way the payment system is. And so that's the problem. And then in geriatric medicine, virtually none of them do the procedures. <laughs> okay, so they're more in a consultation. So it's really medicine. all consultation. Yeah. They're wonderful people. I yes. think I'm kind of like Mother Teresa or something, you know, that, that, that they're doing it because it, they don't get paid near as much. And there's a, a pretty significant lawsuit risk for them mm -hmm. because when things go wrong in the nursing home, uh, like a bed sore or something like right. that, that somebody, some aide at some shift didn't turn them at all. They just sue everybody. Yeah. And so that's a disincentive. Anyone who touched the chart, right? Not always, but it's it, it has that kind of flavor to it. Yeah. You know, so nursing homes now, you're probably going to have a PA, maybe a nurse practitioner, and then a supervising doctor that comes by periodically. But the main stuff going on is going to be out of the extenders. Let me ask you this. Is the fact that geriatric patients are on Medicare and not private insurance? Does that, I mean, Medicare can't re, I used to be on military insurance, TRICARE. That's worse and than Medicare. The, yes, it was. I always took TRICARE because I felt like I didn't go to Vietnam. I was lucky you're, and I felt I owed it to that entire generation. <laughs> but we lost I money would, on everybody. I would go to these communities and they're like, we love our vets, rah, 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 you know, USA, USA. And I go, okay, I'd like to come see you. And they go, what do you, what kind of insurance do you have? And I'd say military, sorry, <laughs> we 
we can't take it's it. Medica- it's Medicare. But like, I understand it was such a horrible reimbursement rate. So Medicare lost is the money. same. Yeah, no, Medicare. Basically, the, the the really quick analysis that's just, you know, don't hold me to this, but yeah. we make money on private insurance. That's what built, that's what gives you an income. Right. Medicare is a wash. It basically covers the cost for seeing them, but we don't make any money on them for the most part. Medicaid, I think I figured I lost about $20 a visit. Is that right? And I think TRICARE was pretty close to that, yeah, too. Yeah, TRICARE. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm just saying, so one reason you see a lot of PAs out there, now that the hospitals generally run the clinics, mm-hmm. they don't want to lose money. You know, so a PA is cheaper to pay for than a doctor, and they can, they essentially the same charge. There's some ways you can finagle it to where they get paid the same or very close to the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a question for you. What is polypharmacy? Okay, yeah, that's good. That's on our, that was our last stuff we were talking about. So getting into medications. So we talked about the other stuff. Polypharmacy means they take too many medicines. Mm-hmm. So first, when I saw somebody that was a geriatric patient for the first time, first thing I did was go through all their medicines and cull them down. I usually knocked out at least half that they really didn't need. Is that right? And then the other thing about medication reactions. So I've already talked about how things stay in the body longer. So when we do drug interactions, almost all the studies are this drug interacts with that drug one-on-one. But after you add a third drug, nobody knows all bets are off. Okay. And we have people that just take enormous amounts of medicines and they don't know what they're doing. I remember I had one come into the ER one time that was on so many medicines, she finally gave up and put them all in a sack, mixed them all together. And she would take the handful based on <laughs> how bad she felt. And some of these drugs, you know, were super toxic. If you take two of them, it could kill you. How she lived, did that a few months. But so one of the advantage of cutting back on medicines is the cost and the hassle and trying to remember them and all of this. But there's a huge danger when you start adding these medicines. And and one one reason I think everybody, everybody should have a primary care physician. Everybody. And it should be somebody they trust. Because if they don't trust them, they're not going to do what they say. If you don't like them the first time, maybe you give them a couple more visits. But you got to trust them. And if you don't, you need to try to find another one. I mean, that's just my, my suggestion because they're the ones that are going to see all this stuff from the specialists. So there's an old joke that's not just medicine, but if... If you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Okay, so you go to the gastroenterologist for your stomach. They're going to give you drugs like Honexium and those types of drugs, uh, some of which have been linked to Alzheimer's also. And maybe you don't need that much. But the problem for them is they don't get there till they've already tried Zantac, Tagamet, all the -the over-the-counter stuff. So they have an incentive to just give you that, which will make you feel better, then out the door you are, and they move on to the next patient. And they, they, they don't look at the stuff that, that goes beyond their specialty a lot of times. I shouldn't pick on gastroenterologists. <laughs> Urologists give the bladder medicines. I'm just saying, and then yeah. the patients get up, but he said he's the right. expert. Well, okay, but you know, you know, you get into this. But uh, it's important to have somebody overseeing all of this because they don't look at the other stuff. They look at what you're there for. If you don't want your bladder to leak, 
that's their they'll take that, care of it. It's like Sir Lancelot. They're not yeah. gonna stop till your bladder stops licking. Do <laughs> the medicine, do the surgery. Yeah. I mean, that's their yeah. job. Uh, so you can't you can't blame them, but you just have to understand kind of how the system works. You need a quarterback. You need yeah, yeah, need a coach at, or something. Yeah, right, you're someone right, right. to look at the whole picture yeah. and say, "Hey, wait a minute." Yeah, if he throws and nobody's ever out there to yeah. catch it. <laughs> or you know, if, if you're getting up and falling at night, hey, maybe it's some of this mix of stuff. And I I know with all the medications, I mean, it's a little scary to read these possible side effects, but I know the reason we go to physicians is that there's the good and the bad. And you go to a physician because you trust that person's had the education to know, okay, the bad in this is far outweighed by the good. But Or at least you should know and make your own decision. Exactly. You should have an idea of, of what you're risking by doing that and let you weigh, yes. you know, weigh it, you know. Yes. And so, uh, yeah. So we really don't like a whole lot of medicines. And uh, as far as uh, falling, one other little tidbit, is if you give a medicine for essentially kind of nerves, and that can be a sleeping pill, it can be a, uh, a pill that keeps you from being agitated, especially in the nursing homes. There's a huge number of these drugs, and all of them have something called a black box warning. And a black box warning says it kills people. It's oh a side my. effect. There's an increased risk of death. And some of them we kind of know, and some of them we suspect why it's not a huge increase, but it's a real increase. So the way I would explain it is take a drug like, like we don't use hardly any Valium, I hope, in the Valium anymore. But they do use a lot of uh, lorazepam or Ativan, which is yes, one of these do. drugs, mm -hmm. okay? And the, the good thing about it, if, if grandma's giving everybody trouble, you give her that, she'll be happy for a while. Right. And so the nursing homes really like them to be happy and quiet. And they'll call the doctor and badger him until he gives them something. It's, that's the mechanism that gets a lot of these people on it. The problem is, is if grandma gets up at 2 o'clock in the morning to go to the bathroom and she's partially sedated and she missteps just a little bit, normally you kind of catch yourself and you stand up. But the time it takes you to catch yourself is greatly delayed. They fall. They break their hip. They hit their head and get a bleed in the brain, but the hip fractures are the most common. Well, they start a whole series of things, oh. it seems like, uh, you know, just from what I've seen of people who've had fractures like that. Yeah, in fact, uh, it made me think of something else. You were mentioning your 90-year-old mother. Yes. Okay, so when my parents started getting infirmed, and I used to tell this to all my patients, and I did this for them, so there's a lot of things you can't do anything about. There's really nothing you can do about Alzheimer's still, even though there's a lot of talk, there's drugs they give, but really nothing to speak of. Uh, but what you can do is try to keep them from having things that make it worse, particularly painful things. So broken hips are really common. Mm -hmm. You break a hip, the chances of you living a year, oh, or of it killing you, something like a quarter. Is that right? Very high. And they don't die from the surgery. They don't die from the injury. What they die from is they never quite get back on their feet again. Yes. And then they die. Mm -hmm. uh, so a broken hip is a big deal. Mm -hmm. It's really a good thing to be scared about. So what you think about is, okay, how can you prevent this from happening? You go through the house. If there's a, a loose piece of carpet, everybody steps on. The floor is slick. There's a piece of a coffee table that kind of sticks out that everybody hits every now and then, or people hit every now and then, 
it's not that good of a coffee table. That's right. Get rid, get rid of the darn table. Get, get something ugly. Move but just it. It's better Move than it. Grandma breaking her up, you know, or Grandpa. I always say Grandma because they yeah. lived along. Think of kind of making the house safer. The bathroom, redo the bathroom, put handles in the showers, handers on the toilets. You can get the toilet raised to where you don't have to sit down so low, which makes it easier to get up, less likely to fall things like that. And so there's a whole list of these things. That's like number one thing because it's fairly easy to do. And it's interesting, I know from personal experience with with a member of my family, we learned that the towel racks are not that that strong. They're not made to take your weight when you get out of the shower. You don't hold on to them to get the back. You need a bar that will be... It's screwed into the frame. Exactly. (laughs) It needs to be in a two-by-four, not a piece of sheetrock. Right, right. 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 And that's important because you can... You can fall and then start all that all over again. So you mentioned the importance of having a primary care physician that we trust, and that's an awesome piece of advice. I knew this was going to be a terrific interview, and I'm so happy to hear this information. I'm wondering, what's the best way for us to prepare when we're going to go to the doctor? Oh, actually, okay. That's a good one. So the first thing is, and I type mine out. I have it typed out every time, even though they want me to fill out their form. I'll do what they want, but I send them my, give them my typed one because my handwriting is horrible <laughs> and it's more detailed. So write everything that happened to you. And I don't mean, you know, you broke up with your husband when he said this 10 years ago, but things like all your surgeries, all of the medical problems you know you have, and then when you get into drug problems, okay, they're going to ask you allergies. One thing people get wrong is anything they don't, when they don't like a drug, they say they're allergic to it. Mm. And you need to write, say, penicillin, dash, mother told me it caused a rash when I was three, okay? Right. Or penicillin, they did CPR in the emergency room when I was three. (laughs) Huge difference. Right. Most of the rashes are viruses that somebody got penicillin for, and it wasn't even caused by the, it was that they got, you know, German measles or something, and that caused the rash. Right. But the, the real, that's called anaphylaxis. That's the bad one. And, uh, but say exactly what it was. So if something upset your stomach, I mean, like erythromycin, it should have. I mean, virtually everybody gets an upset stomach yeah, with it. So that's not a stomach. reaction. That's like, welcome to the world. Yeah. yeah. And uh, But do that very accurately because someday you may be in a situation where you're in a coma and you're having some terrible infection and they're trying to decide what antibiotic to give. And all that they have is allergic to penicillin, which may be the drug of choice or variant of it, you don't want to lose the option of that drug because you just didn't communicate it properly. And that way it gets in, the, it should get into the electronic record, should be there when you're in the ER. On your symptoms, be try to be specific and try to limit them. So what people do is come in with a list of 12 things, 15 things. And doctor, you know, they're scheduling for us, they tell us how long we have, and we have maybe 15 minutes for a visit, of which at least five or more are just typing <laughs> because we got to use the electronic record and all now. And so you've got to be efficient. Mm-hmm. So if you have something that bothers you, say chest pain, you want to know how long you've had it, what brings it on, do you break out in a sweat? The doctor will ask you these things, but if you've already thought about this stuff and you have it all right there so he has a more specific thing, that helps him get to the point faster. Especially with dates. 
That's a hard thing to come up with off yeah, the top of your head. It is. That's why I do my type thing. And I'm sure yeah. some of my dates are wrong. But I started doing this when I became actually in private practice. And I, and I had an electronic record that I had for my practice that I did before. Long, I'm a computer guy, so I did this way before everybody else did. But uh, I started trying to get them as best that I could. So I got my tonsils out. Let's see, I wasn't in first grade yet. So I say probably five, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. But that's close enough. And uh, on the stuff recent, you ought to try to, you know, if you've had a stint in 81, 84, 87, you really ought to have that down. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so they get a sense of where you've been. Well, as I said to you before, I am the primary caretaker of my 90-year-old mother. So I had all kinds of respect and admiration for you when I learned that you had taken care of both of your yeah. parents with Alzheimer's. I can only imagine what type of experience that must have been for you. It was good for them because of what I knew. It was bad for me <laughs> because it's just really, it's the hardest thing I ever did. Even it one is, of them was the hardest thing I've ever done. Oh yeah. And, yeah. uh, my father died at 88. My mother died at 86 of Alzheimer's. And they both died of complications of it. And things that I learned, it, it's all stuff that you kind of know, but you kind of suspect. So one problem was AIDS stealing. They hmm. just all, I, I fired three different crews that well, they would sad. steal. And the last crew, I said, okay, I'm coming over. They said her wedding ring was missing, which she never took off. And I said, well, I'm, I was, lived 100 miles away. I was trying to commute 100 miles, taking care of them and teaching at the medical school just while I was in the city, you know, mm -hmm. is the way I did it. By the time I got there, I said, because well, then we can call the police and figure out who stole it. There was three shifts, so she would try to blame it on the other. But, oh, I found it. You know, she had just oh, found gosh. it. Oh, gosh, here it yeah, is. Here it is, you okay. know, that kind of stuff. But yeah. it's, a, it's amazing. So people going into hospitals, people going into nursing homes, take the credit card. <laughs> I, I would take just keep their wallet and I would take all jewelry off. They even stole my father, three different electric razors. Oh dear. I mean, it was just wasn't even worth that much, but then he wouldn't get shaved. And then they, you know, it was just, it was just, it was, it was depressing for me to see the stuff that went on on that. So we had a lot of problems with that. And then we had some injuries. The problem with elderly that are dementia, when you listen to them, is they, they're very paranoid at times, and they will get very confused, and they will say things that didn't happen. So one thing very common in the hospital is grandma would be in the hospital, and there may be one or two people I've been working with, and then the rest of the brothers and sisters would come in, and grandma would say, that doctor's trying to kill me. <laughs> And that, that raises a flag. Well, right. You know, you want to see your mother. She looks terrible. She's yeah. in the hospital. And yeah. that doctor's trying to kill me, and especially yeah. when you're a country doctor. They may, who knows? Yeah. And then that would go on. And then what happens with them is they do it to whoever's around them. Yeah. So then like two or three of the siblings are going to kill or killing her too. And then I get, <laughs> then I get a pass after everybody's trying to kill her and they realize, no, she's sick, you know? Yeah. And they, and so yeah. it never went beyond that because they always, you know, it's, it's just this, this pattern. But the problem is sometimes they're telling the truth. Mm -hmm. And my mother said, named one of the aides. This is, she's at home getting three shifts of aids and mm -hmm. home health and me and all that. But said she stomped me in the foot 
And I looked at her foot and broken her toes, bruised. It was very obvious somebody, Something even the type of injury happened. happened exactly like she said it. Yeah. And, you know, what do you do? You fire them. And get, yeah. You know, I mean, there's no accident that does it in the way this was. It was exactly, knew. I knew it was the truth. And so that, it worries me. I don't have great advice for people other than, you know, I tell you on one hand, don't listen to them. And then on the other hand, you got to listen to yeah. them. It's tough. I think it's just a matter of being aware. And I found... I worked as a speech pathologist in a county nursing home for a while, and I found that it really is important for a patient to have an advocate. Have It is so helpful if they have a family member, even if, as you say, you don't always know what is this or that, but you do know some things, yeah. and you do know some things in terms of their eating schedule, their moods, their care, and it's just so helpful to have a family member that will speak up. That Another thing on Alzheimer's, boy, I could just talk for hours on <laughs> Alzheimer's, but they can have very unique problems. They will say horrible things to family members sometimes, like I always liked you, liked your brother better than you, and this kind of stuff that is just so hurtful that you just right. don't do. Yeah. And it's not uncommon for that to happen. Now, we, I didn't get that one, thank, yeah. thank goodness, but, but it happens a lot. And they, they'll tell me about it, you know, and I try to explain kind of how it is. And I, I explain it kind of like I say, if somebody's having a seizure, mm-hmm and you're trying to help them and their hand hits you and hits you really hard, you don't like blame them for hitting right. you. They were having a seizure. It's kind of like the brain and the mind is having a seizure in a way. Yeah, I think about people like that and that are suffering from things like Alzheimer's and dementia and also people that are in terrible pain. I mean, terminally ill with this horrible pain. And I've thought it would be difficult to be that person and you would just hope that those people that you care about don't remember you from the last times you know if you it's do hard. things like that because you're like that's not me and I'm sure the people who live with this horrible chronic pain, it has to affect the way you deal with people that you're close to. And uh, you know all the pain medicines that work have potential side effects that are lethal. I can't think of any other than maybe Tylenol. I mean, even stuff like Advil can be yeah. very dangerous, you know, and you just have to watch it. But all of the opiates, you know, which is what you use on somebody with terminal cancer and all, mm-hmm. one of the issues for doctors is the worry is that they will say that they deliberately overdose somebody and that's why they died. And every now and then you'll have some prosecutor somewhere in the country try to go after them for like murder or something Mm. like that, which is just, I just hope that generally speaking, it hasn't gone anywhere. And and what the doctors know and what we're taught is there's no maximum dose of a narcotic for somebody in pain. Mm -hmm. You give the dose that relieves the pain. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. Fortunately, neither of my parents were actually in much pain at all. That was really not an issue with them. They were pretty crazy. Yeah. But they weren't hurting. <laughs> or if they were, they never expressed it. Yeah. Well, that's a good, good thing. You know, in preparing for our interview, I did a lot of looking, a lot of research on the computer and found there were a variety of different professional associations that offered information both to doctors, to physicians, and 
to family members, to patients. Is there anything like that you recommend both in terms of, as we say, the geriatric medicine or in caring for elderly? The main one I would say would be looking up Beer's criteria. So it'll be written for doctors, but it's written in a way that you can understand it, uh, just looking it up. As far as general searches and all, you know, the big hospitals, Mayo Clinic, stuff like that, you could try that. I don't have great ideas. And the thing that you got to be careful of is this. If you go to a website that said, what are the side effects of a uh, naproxen? You know, very common. And it'll tell, there'll be a huge list because if anybody that ever took it, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a list that's pages usually. Mm-hmm. And what doctors know is the ones that you really need to worry about. Where when you don't know, You'll see something way down there. I don't know if this is true, but say aplastic anemia, which is just horrible. But we know, I've never seen a case of that. <laughs> but if it's on the, we know the difference. And so one problem patients, that's a problem for doctors and the patients, is they'll go to the web, they'll find something, they'll decide that's what they've got. And so the normal doctor visit, you go to, you see what you, your symptoms, he tells you what you got and what to do. When you do that in advance, First, he has to convince you, which that very high percentage of them are wrong, yeah. uh, that you spend time telling them why that wasn't right <laughs> and then why the medicine they chose wasn't right. Yeah. And you're just wasting time of their limited time on the visit. Right. Right. So the, the things that the Internet are really good for is if you have something really weird and you've been to 20 doctors, you may find something none of them have ever heard of. Probably won't, but you might. That's where you could do the searches of his weird symptoms. The other thing, well, I better be careful with this one. There's a lot of uh, medical, what's the word they use? Uh, overemphasis of business versus what really works. So if there's somebody that, uh, well, it's like there's some doctors out there giving ivermectin for COVID, which I think they they get in trouble for that. Mm-hmm. But say their treatments that they have the cure, and I just so much want to say the names, but I'm not. Uh, but yeah. they, they advertise treatments that I know what the answers are, and there's nothing that they have that other dogs don't have. Right. And then the other group I'm really skeptical of, and I'll say this one by name, is doctors that give out a lot of testosterone. Mm. They'll call them man clinics and men clinics. And if you take testosterone, you'll really feel better. You know, it bulks you up. You know, most of the real muscle men, you know, have it, but it, you know, increases the risk of prostate cancer. It just does all kinds of things that can be bad. And I just, I just don't like that. And, and the board has not taken their license because they say, you know, that it's not enough to get their attention. The, the one, uh, I did have a guy giving it to uh, near me when I was in practice that they did pull his license. It was a guy giving it to adolescents, little adolescent boys oh for goodness. football, the junior high football. And he was they were coming from all over that part of the state. And I turned him in. It took him about two years. The doctor was like 80-something years old. But they, but they first they, do no harm, know. right? <laughs> this guy, that's all he did. He made a fortune. Oh. And uh, because, you know, they'll pay anything to get their son a little heavy, you know. Yeah. Now, you are offering two very interesting courses at Ollie this fall. Could you tell us a little bit about those? Yeah, it's kind of what we've talked about. The first one, I, I named them Geriatrics 1 and 2. The first one is 
more for younger people that are not facing the uh, other stuff yet, but basically kind of how to stay out of trouble. So a lot of thing about drug side effects, a lot about kind of the question is what you should ask your doctor, but essentially more of the emphasis on preventative and just kind of how to navigate the system, which is pretty bizarre at times. The second one, I call it end of life care, but that's probably, you know, that's a pretty negative way to put it, but it's really about when you get old enough that you need help. So I talk a lot about what's the difference between home health and nurses' aides and nursing home, skilled nursing home, rehab, assisted living, and what are kind of the differences and what are supposed to be differences but turned out to be not. So like assisted living for my mom, they turned out to be way better than the nursing home that she was in for a short period of time. And the main reason was I got her, I finally got her to move, you know, and uh, it was after my father had died and she moved close enough to me where I knew everybody. And so they, I'd done stuff for all of them at some point, <laughs> you know, they, they just kind of, they, they treated her special. <laughs> but so even though they supposedly didn't have near the nursing that a nursing home would have, she had much better care, even though normally assisted living wouldn't be for that. It, it depends really. Probably the biggest thing is the people. So are the doctors that take care of patients like that in nursing homes, are they geriatric certified doctors normally? Oh, no, 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 almost none of them. I mean, most of the ones that are will do it because it's kind of expected. But most of them are are doctors and, uh, I mean, they're just doctors. Some of them are family practice, some of them internists. A lot of the real work is PAs and nurse practitioners, and their training is just not as much. Now, my wife is a nurse practitioner. I am not anti-nurse practitioner. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're good. They can be very good, but you got to know what they know and what they don't know. And so when we were 30 years together in a, in a, in a solo, more or less solo practice because I couldn't get another doctor there with me that wanted to come to Gilmer, which is a very nice small town. <laughs> But uh, that's just kind of how it worked out. But she knew what she knew. I knew what she knew. And we would more or less schedule in a way that made sure she saw the things that, that, you know, and the patients kind of chose too. So when she came, for instance, all the ladies stopped wanting me to do their pap smears. (laughs) I couldn't understand why somebody I'd do it 10 years and suddenly that's not, you know, but that's what they like, you know? So, but that worked out because that's easy to do. And that left me more time for the jury, the hard stuff, you know? And she could always turn to you. Right. About once every two, three days, you know, she would have something, ask a question or something. And every time she did, she would learn something new generally. Dr. McKenzie, this has been so interesting for me, and I'm sure for very many of our listeners. I can't thank you enough for being here. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you'd like to share with the listeners? Oh, I was going to give a shout out to your podcast with Becky Knight. What she, uh, I forget exactly her description, but it was something I'd actually not heard of before, but it's like a geriatrics non-medical person that kind of talks about the system and almost everything she said I agreed with about the only thing I would say I disagreed with was really not a disagreement but she had kind of this I'm kind of conservative and so she had this kind of view that I consider more of a liberal view that the government when it comes it 
brings great things to you. And is the guy trying to deal with those rules? <laughs> some are good, some are bad. Yeah. I don't think it's quite as good as maybe she might have thought. I've never t- never met her. <laughs> might be an interesting conversation. Yeah. But uh, generally, very good thing to listen to. So anybody interested in the stuff, particularly in my second talk, that would work really good, too, for them to listen to that podcast. Well, well, we'll be sure to post that podcast number when we release the podcast, so it will be in the description. And that's the podcast with Becky Knight. And she is a retired UNT professor, for those of you who haven't listened to her podcast yet. So thank you, thank you, thank you for taking the time to talk with me. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it. This has been Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas with Dr. John McKenzie. Thanks for listening. The Ollie at UNT podcast is recorded and edited by Susan Supak and produced by me, Jordan Williams. If you enjoyed this episode, check out our previous interviews and subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcast app. To receive email notifications about each new episode, join our email list at olli.unt.edu slash podcast.